fraudsters are really smart, right? Again, goes back to they're getting paid for this. This is what they do for a living. We're on the wrong side of this, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but just merchants being more proactive, actually looking at their transactions, getting into their data is 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 not something that is a when are we going to do this? This is a we need to do this now. Welcome to Subscriptions Scaled, sponsored by Rebar Technology. Join us each week to hear from industry leaders in the subscription space, share their best tips and stories, and learn how you can up-level your subscription business today. Hello, listeners, and welcome to a special episode of Subscription Scaled. I'm your host, Nick Frederick. With me today is my co-host, Josh Mathers, and we are here today to talk about fraud and chargebacks. We have brought a distinguished panel to the discussion today to guide us through some very experienced individuals in this space. And with that, let's go around and introduce everybody. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Christine, let's start with you. Woo! <laughs> Christine Wade. I am with Payment Operations Group. We are all things payment consultants. I focus on our fraud, on a more data-driven fraud detection, prevention kind of space, looking at chargebacks and all the good stuff. Awesome. Awesome. Mandy, let's go over to you. All right. Hi, I am Mandy Grimm with eTix. We are a primary ticketing provider. So we do mostly online sales for ticketed events, um, some at the box office as well. So I handle all of our fraud and chargebacks. Awesome. Great to have the merchant perspective. Scott, over to you. Hey guys, Scott Adams. So I'm with uh, Fraud Deflect and CMP Mentors. So we do consulting and are also a chargeback management platform. Just launched a few months back. And uh, I've been doing payments and fraud for 20-something years now. Awesome. Great to have you all here. Looking forward to this discussion today. And I guess with that, Josh, I'll turn it over to you to uh, dive us into the discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, everyone. So I, I think fraud and chargeback, I would say, are two different topics a little bit, but obviously related. I think a good place for us to start would be getting an idea of the fraud trend. What are you all seeing from a fraud perspective right now? Kind of where does it start? Where does kind of fraud start? And what issues should people be aware of and looking at? Christine, do you want to take it first? Sure. <laughs> All right. So we are seeing in the subscription space in particular, a lot of people are having bots, right? This is from COVID. This is someone's actual job, right? Is to find credit cards that have money on them and pass them off on the dark web. So there are lots and lots of bots. Of course, there's friendly fraud. Somebody signed up for a subscription. They don't want it anymore. Those trends. There's just a lot of fraudsters out there right now, right? You can get a job committing fraud pretty easy. <laughs> we might be on the wrong side of this, guys. But general, like true fraud and friendly fraud are definitely top of mind right now for especially subscription merchants. I think across the board, you know, what a lot of what we saw during COVID is continued in a lot of ways. You know, I think it in some ways it's for the same reasons, right? We've had a lot of companies laying people off and other people having economic problems. And so with that, like with COVID, we saw a lot of friendly fraud. A lot of people just not wanting to pay their credit card bills. They do, they lower them the easy way by calling the credit card company. Also definitely see a lot of card testing. And just as we're seeing, I think more of the industry of things like you, you just, you know, fraud as a service, like things popping up. And then I think also from COVID, but then just, it just continued to drive forward, I think is we've had, I think a lot more new merchants, you know, cause you think about so many, even a lot of the point of sale systems end up running your cards online. You've got all these new merchants that never even thought they would process a credit card, not only processing, but they're online. So they have no idea what they're doing. They don't have anti-fraud. They don't know to, what to look for. So that just provides more opportunity for fraudsters. 
I think it just multiplies from there. Yeah, and we see that a lot too. I mean, definitely friendly fraud has increased for us because it's a lot easier for patrons to just get a refund, especially because a lot of venues don't do refunds. So it's just no refunds, no exchanges, that's it. But we also see a lot of that where patrons are wanting to just get that refund quickly because their financial situation may have changed. A lot of people jumped online. Oh, sorry. (laughs) When you say friendly fraud there, Mandy, just to make sure that we level set, like how do you define friendly fraud? We define it as the patron trying to get a refund after they purchased the tickets or even attended the event. And it's even, you know, as Scott was saying, a lot of new merchants are experiencing it. And we see that with a lot of smaller venues too. So they don't realize that a patron is calling their bank to get a refund because they've reached out to the venue to get a refund. We're calling friendly fraud, like the actual card holder is trying to get their money back after the fact. Yes, we normally expect, are they reporting it as fraud, like using fraud related codes? Yeah, a lot of times they do. And I think that's also because that's the easiest way to do it. And especially if they're repeat offenders, not necessarily through us, but if they've done this before and gotten away with it, they know that they can just file a fraud reason code and it's going to get accepted. And then they don't have to provide as much evidence or dispute it, if you will, because they're not really questioned and it's so hard to provide evidence from the merchant's perspective to actually win that chargeback. Scott, were you going to add to that? I was just going to say that I think in the industry a lot that we broadened that a little bit and that I totally agree with your assessment of it. Then on top of that, a lot of times, I think with friendly fraud, we'd lump in really any time that it really very much looks like a consumer, you know, it may not be the cardholder, but it may be somebody in, in that account and maybe somebody that can, you know, legitimately use that card. And then it's a mistake and they call for a chargeback because they don't know what that charge was. And that could be that it's bad descriptors. It could be that it's a husband and wife sharing a card and the husband buys something, doesn't tell the wife or just. He does, but she doesn't recognize and then she pays the bills or it could be a kid, right? Just with a video game or something or so many different reasons why it could happen, but it's so hard to detect because it doesn't look like fraud, right? And then the other thing I think we bundle onto that and I've actually started to break out and been calling it communication fraud just because it's labeled fraud, but it's really just communication. Is the merchant doing their job, especially beyond this podcast about subscriptions, right? Are your merchants communicating? the whole process. Does the whole process of buying the product and subscribing align with what happens after? And do they get the product? Do they get the subscription? Do they get the emails that say what the descriptor is? Do they have a thank you page that that has all that information? So again, not really fraud. It gets called fraud, but it's not. It's just the merchant could do a better job or we could do a better job advising merchants. Yeah, those are some good tips right there. I guess just further to that point, these are frustrating things to merchants, right? They're doing what they think they need to be doing, but to be right by the consumer, provide the product or service, but yet these are still coming in. So whether it's buyer's remorse or doesn't recognize the transaction, you hit on a couple of things there, Scott, but I guess, Christine or Mandy, from you, anything else you guys would classify as best practices to mitigate this problem? I mean, from a checkout perspective, right? Stacking the box. That says, yes, I'm (laughs) subscribing to this or something of that nature. Remind someone, yes, you are going to be charged going forward, whether it be monthly, bi-monthly, yearly, whatever the case may be. And emails that are warning people, which I know that's a touchy subject (laughs) with sales and marketing. 
But I mean, anything that's just warning them, this is how much it's going to be, right? You get, you had a discount on this very first purchase. And now going forward, you're not going to have a discount anymore, right? It's not fun, but you want to know how much it's going to be. So you don't want to just blindside your consumer because that's going to more than likely lead to a chargeback of some sort or just mm -hmm. a bad customer experience altogether. Yeah. One thing I'll throw in there too, just that you just said the checkbox. I see a whole lot out there. The checkbox is there, but it's already checked. So making sure that checkbox is not checked before they see it and they have to affirmatively say, yes, I want this. And I think too, after that original transaction goes through to also follow up with that confirmation that tells them when it is a subscription that tells them, Hey, don't forget these other payments are going to come in and when they're going to come in so that they aren't blindsided. Because I know for us, when we do subscriptions, it's usually for a season. So you might have four payments and they may not be the same every month. They may be every other month or something like that. So really trying to remind them when that cadence is going to be at that charge so that they aren't blindsided and then don't dispute it. How do you guys work with marketers though, who are sitting on the other side saying, don't wake the dead. Don't remind our customers that these charges are coming. What do you say to them? You know, what I do a lot is that generally starting with just what's the problem, right? And almost always the problem is always too many chargebacks. And so then generally walk through the process. Look, we can start here. We can do some really expensive things and stop your chargebacks. Or we can look across your whole customer journey and then step by step, like we, you don't want to do it all at once unless you're about to get shut down, but we can evaluate it. We can say, okay, here's 20 things that are messed up that aren't in alignment. And then we can help them. Like I used to be a marketer. And so we actually sit there and I'll help on the marketing side and say, look, okay, change these five words. That's it. Now run, let's see what happens. You know, then maybe that helped. Maybe it didn't. If it did, awesome. Go to the next one. Not try to crush their business with a bunch of changes all at once, but slowly, methodically, systematically make the changes down the road. And the other thing I always remind them too is to look at their total cost, their total LTV, making sure to include the cost of the chargebacks and those things. Because I think really, although we talk about front of payments, the big chunk of what we're doing is improving lifetime value. And so if you once you have a good calculation of lifetime value that your company understands and you keep standard, you can't change it every month, then you can track those things. And I think that speaks to them more instead of just talking about fraud rates. I guess I'm maybe say on the theme with the marketing side, are we seeing, are you guys seeing anything from a marketing channel bringing in more fraud than some other, right? There's a lot of social affiliate marketing, obviously still a thing, but marketing teams go out and acquire these customers, but is anything specifically more susceptible to fraud. I feel like what I see more in the marketing realm issues towards chargebacks would be like loyalty fraud, coupon code fraud, right? Someone's actually breaking up their transactions so that they are getting more of a discount across 10 transactions instead of just 10% off of one, right? So they are utilizing that and there's things in the back end that you need to do. Working with a marketing team and your sales team before like programs go into place, it is very necessary to find those loopholes, right? And you don't want those to get utilized. You don't want to have a loophole for someone to commit coupon fraud, right? Coupon fraud. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Go ahead, Mandy. I was just going to say, I think for us, we don't see it as much where it turns into true fraud and chargebacks as it does policy abuse. So our marketing teams may be really excited about a pre-sale or a fan club offer. Hey, get these tickets early if you join our mailing list or something along those lines. 
and then they'll sell out a show or get closer to selling out a show through the pre-sales and instead of the actual on sale when the event goes on sale to the general public. And that may not turn into chargebacks and fraud is in stolen money, but it's turning into a policy abuse. They're trying to get around ticket limits and things like that. So the inventory isn't as available to the general public. So that's what we see more is a policy abuse approach. Totally. Scott, anything to add there? Or do you see the same things? Yeah, pretty much the same. It's, I think you mentioned affiliates, like that's actually where I come from 20 something years ago was doing affiliate marketing and yeah, that's still rampant and it's not necessarily a bad thing, but the problem with affiliates and really any other, any sales channel is back to what I said earlier about communication. If that marketing, those landing pages, the affiliates have aren't aligned, they get to your order page that you host. Does it say the same thing? It's the message the same. That's one thing. Another thing I think in the same vein too, really is just that, how's the pricing lined up? Right. Cause a lot of times when you have different channels, you have different pricing. And so if that stuff's all not in alignment, if it doesn't flow through the whole system correctly, you end up with problems. And again, is it fraud? Not really. It's more configuration and communication and just making sure all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. Yep. Makes sense. And then before we get into chargebacks, I think good segue into the chargebacks here, but Christine, you had mentioned one of the things you're also seeing is our bots. And so maybe talk us through what you're seeing from a bot perspective. I'm assuming card testing and some of that type of stuff, but maybe walk us through what you're seeing and share your thoughts on that. Lots of card testing. Generally speaking, though, you know, if you start looking into your data, you can find fraud trends, right, as well. So you've got 47 transactions within one second with one IP address. So you're looking at the velocity. You make a type in a credit card number that quickly, or even Google Chrome can fill in my credit card number that quickly. Because <laughs> I have to still supply my CVV for it to fill in for me. So no human is going to run through 47 cards <laughs> in one minute because I don't know how many people have 47 credit cards. Their name probably not good for your credit, but that's a whole other story. So <laughs> it's that kind of trend, right? And then once they've gotten one to go through, they move on, right? They signed up for a subscription or just one physical product for non-subscription merchants. That's going to end up being a chargeback. You've got these 46 transactions right around it. So why isn't that a huge red flag for any, any merchant that sees this many attempts on this one product, this one product number, it's a lower dollar amount because they want to make sure that card is open and available. Fraudsters are going to take that credit card because it's open and available. They're going to sell it on the dark web so somebody else can buy an Apple you know, TV and resell it on eBay or whatever the case may be, however they're making their money. <laughs> but just finding that one in the 47, right? You've just got this one guy, you've got the 46 around it, will link to so many more fraud. Some data point in there is linked to more transactions. It is linked to more attempts than your authorization. You're seeing them in your declines. You've just got to put them together and build that whole picture. And a lot of people just don't, look at all of their transactions. They're not looking at their declines. They're looking at just their approvals and saying, how could we have caught that? Let's look at everything around that. Was there a sign? Was there an IP address, a credit card number, a zip code, a phone number, whatever the case may be, that kind of links these dudes together. Because even though it's a bot, they are not refilling in every field, right? Generally speaking, they're not refilling out the phone number field or something so that it can keep chugging through the credit card numbers that it's trying to find that one. 
that will go for very fast much. Oh, it's a lot. Anything to add, Mandy, Scott, as far as what you guys are seeing or protecting from? I think we should always, you know, I think bots are definitely something to watch for. And just like she said, velocity rules, these kind of things to, to prevent that. I've been encouraging merchants to do some kind of device fingerprint as well, just because it actually helps you prevent these kind of things and watch for them. Uh, but yeah, no, I think we've covered it. Awesome. I think bots are pretty prevalent in our space. Ticketing, you know, you're trying to get tickets in a short period of time. And ours is also, even if the transactions don't go through, whether they're declined or they even try to get to the checkout page, but a lot of times it's an inventory management piece or problem for us because tickets are released, whether they're released for an on sale or whether it's the events getting ready to happen or something like that. And the bots are scraping sites looking for inventory. So they cause a lot of other problems because if it looks like the inventory is gone, then they're going to change the pricing. It might cause a demand and pricing influx or something along those lines, but they're grabbing the inventory, which kind of starts to mess with the whole supply and demand of the ticketing event. To dive into the wonderful world of chargebacks, maybe let's start, Christine, I'll throw this to you, but maybe describe for uh, people who might not be as familiar, what is a chargeback? Maybe give a, a high level overview of that, of the process. Uh, a chargeback is when a merchant has received a notification from their cardholder's bank that their cardholder, or if they're not their cardholder, has disputed a transaction, right? Their card was used fraudulently. They have actually canceled their subscription. The goods or services that they received were not up to snuff for that consumer. So they're going instead of to the merchant to get a refund, they're going directly to their bank to dispute the transaction. Therefore, the bank is also charging it back to the merchant and the merchant is on the hook <laughs> for that money, for that fraudulent order, for that bad piece of service that consumer received or whatever the, whatever the dispute is. I think that's good. Anything to add, Mandy Scott, as far as what, how you would define it? That's a really good definition. I always start from the other side and say the first thing that how it ends up working is that the consumer calls their bank. They would maybe call it Visa or MasterCard and instead it's, we know it's the issuer, right? So they call them and they ask questions, oftentimes wanting to dispute the transaction. And then like we've said a few times already, oftentimes they say something that may not be true. Oh, it must be fraud, even though they really just want a refund. But yeah, no, good definition. Great. Then when you think about the reason, I think we've covered some of the reasons for fraud, right? Which fraud generally can show up as a chargeback, but what are some of the reasons, common reasons out there besides kind of friendly fraud, the people are submitting chargebacks to their bank, right? So I think we've talked about unclear communication. People don't know what's going on, right? Don't recognize the charges to those friendly fraud, but what are some of the other reasons that a chargeback might come through to a merchant? Canceled recurring, goods or services not received, unknown transaction. Oh my gosh, I'm trying to run through all these in my head. You're doing the reason codes. <laughs> yeah. One thing I like to remind people is that there is a legitimate reason for chargeback. One reason being, let's say that the merchant does not do the refund. If they actually don't do the refund, that's a good reason for a charge. If they don't cancel the recurring for real, and they have most of the time you get that reason code, they just never contacted the merchant, but that does happen. Or let's say the merchant goes out of business or he doesn't have any money left, right? These are all reasons for chargebacks or processing errors. And there's errors that used to be more common was duplicates. You could have duplicate transactions. It's tech gets rid of that mostly now. 
we definitely see those some. I think there's more friendly fraud than those things, but we definitely see those as reasons too. Scott, anytime you go to an issuer and, and dispute something, they almost always ask first, did you contact the merchant, right? Did you try to work it out with them before going through this process as they're supposed to do? In your estimation, how often do you think that actually happens? I remember 20 something years ago going through this exercise and getting you know, tons of chargebacks in the mail, literally in the mail, and pulling up my databases, looking through this, not one consumer had contacted the <laughs> company when I was a merchant before I got a chargeback. And back then they did ask more questions. It's a much easier to do a chargeback now. So yeah, I think in general, most chargebacks, they never contact the merchant. What about you guys? You see that too? Absolutely. I think that we rarely get contacted. And I've even had responses on the chargebacks where the issuer reviews our response. And then they end up saying, no, you don't, the cardholder doesn't have to prove that they tried to contact you. Even when we have proof that they didn't contact us, what our policy is, especially if it's refunds or exchanges are allowed because whatever reason an event's postponed, or even if the venue just allows for the patron to get a exchange, they reach out to the bank a lot of times and just say, oh yeah, I tried to contact them. Nobody ever called me back. And we document all of that and can show, no, we didn't receive communication from them. And we allow for refunds or exchanges for this particular event or venue and they need to contact us and go through the right channels. And it doesn't really work out that way for us. And they often say along the lines of, oh, sorry, the cardholder doesn't have to prove that. They already contacted us. We've already pulled the money. So we're just going to keep it. Yeah, that's super frustrating for merchants. And to be fair, there's bad actors, right, who make it very hard to contact them. Absolutely. They're on hold for 20 minutes and people are like, I'm done with this. I'm just calling my bank. So th those things certainly yep. happen. But outside of that, if you do have the channels open, any other advice for anybody listening on how to kind of mitigate that problem? I think having all the channels open, like you said, I think a lot of merchants will put like a phone number there that's not really a monitored number. And I say that should definitely be a good number. I think email support, it's gotta be responded too fast. Like I've consulted for a lot of merchants, some really big ones that would be happy with two or three week turnaround. And so guys, are you gonna wait? Who here is gonna wait? three weeks for an email about a refund. Now you go to Amazon, you click the button, you get your money back. Mm -hmm. Why should that be different for anybody else? At least that's the consumer's view. I think that the turnaround has to be fast. So I would say prioritize those things. If it has to do with money, you got to deal with it immediately. Less than 24 hours. I think the other thing that's I always find funny with or frustrating with merchants is that I remember I was consulting with a really big brand name and just go, what I always do is I go through the process try to get a refund for the product. And I'm going through their decision support system. They're like, back, this is a little bit ago, but like the, the chat bot that's on the, the website, it literally told me, call your bank. So when I told the fraud people, they were surprised at this. And so check those things. If you're the probably the fraud and payment people listening here, who designed your chat bot? It probably wasn't you. So check those things and check even any touch point that could lead somebody to a chargeback. Check it yourself. Don't trust that the whole company understands what a chargeback is and why they happen. Scott mentioned this a little bit earlier about merchant descriptors. And we recommend to our venues, especially because a lot of them are seasonal. So before they get ready to put their seasons on sale or any event on sale, to have multiple people in their organization purchase tickets with multiple cards. So they're hitting different banks because obviously don't use the corporate card that everybody has the same bank. Use your personal card, try to buy tickets before it goes on sale. Look at that bank statement and see what shows up. 
to make sure that something didn't change in your merchant account, especially if you are a seasonal type merchant, because something could have changed in a time period in which you don't really have sales happening. So we always recommend that. And if at all possible, check the phone numbers that's listed to make sure that they're still, as Scott said, a number that somebody's monitoring. Yeah, those get mangled all the time. The scriptures do, you know, because like I ask merchants all the time, okay, so what are your scriptures? And either they don't know what that is, or they give me the DBA, which if they deal with ISOs, that's fine. The DBA probably is the descriptor. But the problem is I always remind people, what would your cardholder know? And I say that's very specifically cardholder, not your consumer, not the person that's buying, because it could be a kid. It could be another party, especially international. Cards are shared across families, across communities sometimes. So what would the cardholder know? Because he's paying the bill. She's paying the bill. So you got to check that. And then to make sure that descriptor is not some company no one's ever heard of, to make sure it's something that is very recognizable to that cardholder. Because a good example in video games, which I've done a lot of work with, oftentimes it'd be the brand or the company name. But you know, when you, when you guys have kids, you sit around the dinner table, your son, your daughter talks about, oh yeah, I was playing this game, dad. It wasn't, I was playing this game. And by the way, it's made by this company. Now they talk about the game. So if you're sophisticated enough, you can consider dynamic descriptors. Like ideally it's maybe some kind of roll up around your company, but then it's game name, it's product name. It's something super recognizable. So there's absolutely no way the current holder will not recognize it. Yeah. So as, as we think about the subscription kind of world, we have the initial transactions and then we have the recurring renewal of transactions. So maybe walk us through what you are seeing from a chargeback perspective, what's the difference between them? How do you handle an initial chargeback that comes back on an initial transaction versus a recurring transaction? And, and how, do you, how does a merchant think about that? For the initial transaction, it's really, it's the same as any other transaction. Most consumers don't notice the difference. So I generally handle those the same as any other. Screen it for fraud, screen it for all the bad things that could happen. And then as far as handling it later, if it is, it's charged, actually gets the chargeback. Then again, it's pretty much the same. You have all the information. So represent it like you would at any, any other transaction. Recurring-wise, so once it goes to rebuild, then there's a whole other set of problems. And what I like to tell merchants to do is look at, see what the time difference is. So between the time you got the charge back and of the transaction. And look how close it is to the charge. And that also goes for the first charge too. And you can use that as a clue. Is this because they had absolutely no idea they're going to be charged? Is it confusion over the price? Is it just, was it just forgotten? Like a lot of times you'll see rebuilding transactions just work great, work great. Then month four, month five, you get a charge back. So that's somebody that just forgot, probably. Did they like their product, your product? I don't know. But they forgot, they saw it, they wanted their money back. I say look for patterns in those things. Whereas if it's really early, sometimes maybe you did a free trial or a low cost initial purchase, then it goes to rebuild. You get most of your transactions there. That's back to communication. Did you communicate the price clearly? Did you communicate the terms that it was going to change price, like Christine mentioned? So looking at those kind of things and just trying to figure out why, what happened. There's generally clues that can tell you that. Most recurring merchants, especially if they have a good product and have worked through the marketing pretty well and keep things in alignment, you'll see more chargebacks on that kind of that first rebuild and then not for a while. And then you see them down the road for people forgetting. So how do you handle the chargebacks, right? So you get one on initial transaction. 
Are you accepting the chargeback, biting it? Do you cancel the subscription? What actions do you take? And then same kind of question on the recurring side. For us, a lot of times it depends on whether any of the events have taken place. If you're doing a subscription and you've got multiple payments because you're trying to pay for the, usually a season, trying to pay for those tickets before the event takes place. If the transaction is charged back on the first transaction, again, if the event hasn't taken place, then a lot of times we can go ahead and cancel the order, take them out of the payment plan and just have the order canceled. It gets a little bit trickier once one or more events has taken place. So we actually recommend that those tickets are paid in full. And as a general rule, they are paid in full before the events take place. So the payment should be completely out of the way. Sometimes it does depend on the artist or promoter as to whether or not we can fight that a lot more or if we can just cancel it. So we don't always have the ability to make that decision, but a lot of times we do recommend going ahead and canceling the order and accepting that charge back just so that the inventory is freed up and it's taken out of the books financially before the event takes place. And it creates a better customer service experience. So that way the patron's like, hey, I was able to not have to purchase those tickets. I really wanted season tickets, but maybe something changed financially for them because they had to commit so far in advance. So it's a better customer experience if you can just go ahead and ultimately end up having that ticket refunded for them. I think we'd all agree that that's generally good advice when we're talking about recurring, right? Is if you get that chargeback somewhere in the middle of the agreement, that it's reflective of a customer who's not happy for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. And, in, and to Scott's point, in a lot of those situations, it's, I forgot. Like, I haven't used it in a while. I forgot about it. So you can expect that either, A, you're going to get more chargebacks, potentially, if you haven't already, or if you dispute it back, that you're likely to not win. And in the end, this is a customer that wants to cancel, right? So you're not going to continue on with this relationship. There's no more revenue to win here. This is just make the best of a bad situation. Everybody agree with that? For sure. Yeah. In our situation too, if they want to come back to an event in the future, then you've made that process simpler for them. If you're thinking about it from a customer service standpoint, then you can, the customer is more likely to say, hey, they were accommodating what they may or may not know that they filed a chargeback and that causes issues. But hey, I got my money back instead of I had to go through all of these loopholes and jump through all these hoops. And it was this big, huge process. So ultimately, it makes them more inclined to be a returning customer. And hopefully they won't file a chargeback again. If they do, that's a whole different conversation. But ultimately, they end up being a happier customer. And then you get that revenue back on a different event in the future. Yeah, I think that's real important is to look at how it impacts the customer. And like I said, they're just the customer journey. You want to keep them most likely. But I think it also a lot depends on your cost structure too. Like in a lot of the clients that I work with are digital. And so they don't have a fixed cost of, of good, really. They have incremental costs, maybe scale, scaling costs, but they don't have, it doesn't cost them 30 bucks to deliver this one product because it's just another bite on a computer. With those, it comes down to workload. You know, do you, is it worth it? To represent, right? And so in that, I think comes down to what's your chargeback rate, right? Where are you in that? Because if your chargeback rate's high, since you've got a likelihood of getting into a Visa monitoring program or a MasterCard monitoring program, then you've got to look at it differently. But unfortunately, even if you win a representment, it does not come off your chargeback rate. So yeah, I think you just have to look at it across the board, all the different variables in play, what makes sense for your business 
and then look at what kind of fraud it is, what kind of chargeback. Because if you really do think it's fraud, not based on recent codes, but based on your data, if it's a real fraud, if it's a criminal, the customer deserves their money back. Let them have it. If, and do you do a better job preventing that in the first place versus if it's friendly fraud and they're trying to get a refund, then you should be looking, okay, why didn't they call me? But knowing some people just won't, never will call you, but that's where you can then consider representing, especially if your physical goods have a high cost, then it starts to make more sense. So I think it's just a numbers game. You've got to evaluate it, make the decision, but either way, evaluate it and do something about it. If it's not represent, then there's other things you can do and you can also figure out why. Totally. Yeah, it's got a good segue there. I think we have the fraud and chargeback programs that exist out there. Some of us have direct experience with those as merchants and others from uh, our position as consultants. But maybe let's talk through those programs a little bit. Christine, do you want to give us a idea of what are those programs? Who are they for? Kind of what happens? Give us a high level understanding of what those programs are there for. Okay. Remind me to stay high level here. <laughs> <laughs> So the card brand program for merchants that have gone over a certain threshold, over a certain dollar amount as well, and have put themselves in what I like to call chargeback jail. <laughs> They've added too high of a chargeback to sales ratio or charge or fraud to sales ratio, and they put themselves over the limit that Visa, MasterCard, American Express, Discover decided was okay. This merchant could be either horrible with taking online payments, or this merchant could be a fraudulent merchant itself. And most of these programs, once you go over this threshold that has been deemed on per card brand, you're getting fines, you could be audited, the card brand could actually shut your website down, and you are no longer able to take Visa online, or MasterCard, or anything like that. So these are put into place, they are changed every so often, there are new programs introduced, so depending on your MCC, depending on what kind of chargebacks you're receiving, you could be put into a certain chargeback program of which you're going to be in trouble. I can go more in depth. I would suggest we go just a little more in depth and define those thresholds because I think most of the people listening are probably payments people. Absolutely. So Visa has a 90 basis points threshold and 75,000, right? 90 basis points. For a regular chargeback, the BDMP, the Visa Dispute Monitoring Program, right? There's the Visa Fraud Monitoring Program as well, which has got to be over $75,000 worth of fraud chargeback. And it's also 90 basis points. Like, right? It's also 90 basis points, but you have to go over $75,000 worth of fraud. But your 90 basis points on the BFMP, Visa Fraud Monitoring Program, is going to be based on your sales to fraud chargeback, whereas the BDMP is going to be all chargeback reason codes to your sales, that ratio, right? One thing to throw out there on that though, is that on the fraud monitoring program, it's actually not just chargebacks. It's any transaction that's flagged for fraud. And so the reason I say that is a lot of people that I've worked with their video games, and if it's a low ticket, the issuer might not do a chargeback because that takes work for them. So they, instead, they just flag it for fraud and you'll never know in many cases that happened. And then all of a sudden you're in a program. And the other thing to point out is like with the MC, you mentioned MCCs, Visa just changed some rules and they, this podcast will be out right in time for this, I think. They're gonna start finding merchants now and putting them in the fraud monitoring program. If their MCC is digital good games or five or six other MCCs, then the limit's $25,000. So that- But 300 charge on that one. Yeah, that could get interesting for some merchants. 
I think it's also important to point out because we've experienced similar situations in the past too, is we talked earlier about patrons or cardholders file a fraud chargeback because that's also the easier way for them to do it. So you end up with a lot of friendly fraud that gets categorized as fraud. And then that can also put merchants in jeopardy because they're dealing with a lot of fraud chargebacks that truly aren't fraud, but then they're ending up on monitoring programs or warning letters about being on monitoring programs when they really shouldn't be. And if they end up proving that was a true charge and it shouldn't have been a chargeback, those numbers aren't being retroactively adjusted. It still counts towards their numbers and they could end up on a monitoring program because of that. I think a lot of merchants are surprised by that, right? You can win those things all day long and it does not matter as far as the programs go. Yep. Other thing I'd say too is depending on what size of merchant you are, if you're with a smaller processor or if you're with like an ISO, then they don't have to listen to the card brands of when to shut you down. Many processors will shut you down before you get to a program and they don't necessarily have to go by those rules either. It's just, that's a ultimatum. If the card brand says the processor can't do a lot about it, but oftentimes because they have their own limits to worry about. So they'll actually shut merchants down way before they hit these thresholds. Absolutely. I used to live in that world. I was an ISO. <laughs> there you go. And if they went over a ratio with us, we shut them down or diverted all of their money in order to cover yeah. any chargebacks that they could not, right? They may not shut you down, but the first step tends to be they start holding some funds. And I know one of, some of, the, one of the big, real popular brands that does smaller merchants, they do that. They go to 10%, then 25%. Then you know you're kind of in trouble. If your business is even surviving at 25%, Reserve. So they can do whatever they want. So you got to be careful. Those acquirers could also not be notifying you that you're in a program. This has definitely been an issue that I've seen where a merchant has come to us asking to look in their, into their chargebacks. I can identify they're well over the ratio. They have been for months. It's not pretty. And they had no idea. They had no idea. And I'm like, well, go back to your acquirer. You need to ask for this documentation. There should be a lovely spreadsheet with those transactions on there that were actually deemed fraud or just a chargeback in general. And we need to dive into why, right? Yes, you need to ask these people. You need to be looking at your own dashboard of your chargeback ratios. You cannot depend on somebody else. This is your business. I think that's a great point. So I know we've talked about prevention uh, strategies for fraud and chargeback both. Obviously, I think those answer somewhat answer the question of how to avoid these programs. But what else might you guys throw out there to avoid finding yourself as a merchant in, in one of these programs that maybe we haven't talked about yet? What we do a lot just happens in our, my newest company, Fraud Deflect, is built around this stuff that oftentimes the things we've already said work, but they take time. And so if you get thrown into a program, or your acquirers saying, your ISO saying, hey, you're being shut down in two weeks if you don't get your chargebacks down. And unfortunately, that's pretty common. Sometimes it's not even that. It's like all of a sudden you wake up and you don't have a merchant account. So one of the faster ways to do it, and depending on it, can work into your strategy is to use alert systems. And you know how I look at it, like you know, chargeback management's come a long way. It used to be you could just represent. Now there's actually a whole slew of products that both Visa and MasterCard have brought out. And so like on the Visa side, there's a couple of products, including a brand new one that lets the merchant actually collaborate with issuers. This is something, and I've been doing this for a long time, always wanted to do this. It's like, why can't I just call that issuer? I can't call them. But now if I use a product from Visa and Verify called Order Insight, I can actually share information. So in real time, via API, I can push more information to the consumer to the, during that phone call that they have with their issuer. And it's like, instead of it being some descriptor that no one's ever heard of, 
it can still be that descriptor, but then you can also push in, Hey, okay, it was this person bought it. Here's their email address. Here's their account ID. Here's their whole shopping cart. Here's everything you as a merchant would want to share with issuer. You can do that through this piece of product. And then the, the brand new one is called uh, compelling evidence three, and there's limitations to it, but it basically does the same thing, except it actually prevents the chargeback right there. Visa steps in. And so if it's a fraud chargeback, fraud coded chargeback, and there's past transactions with that same consumer and the data points line up, then Visa will actually say no chargeback and, to, and ban the issuer from charging that transaction back. And so that's a great thing that it never gets to the chargeback reports. And then further, you've got the alert systems that have been out for a long time, most of them, where Verify or Ethica, another company that's, that one's on my MasterCard, can actually send you an email or API calls and say, hey, you're going to get a chargeback. Do you want to refund this? And you can't represent it if you do that, but you can basically accept it, pay a fee for this alert, but then it never shows up in the chargeback reports. It sometimes shows up on the fraud reports though. And then Visa additionally has something called RER that runs through the chargeback rails. So it can get a little confusing, but it's pretty much foolproof once you get it set up right. And we see issues about a lot that there will not be a chargeback for those Visa transactions. And Ethica and MasterCard have some similar things. And between Ethica alerts, Verify, CDRN, the, and the Visa products and RDR, OI, and CE3, you can actually prevent all these chargebacks. But there's a cost to that. In some ways, you're accepting a chargeback, but maybe you shouldn't be. So it, you got to balance it all. But that, especially in a, if you got to move fast, those things can do it. Like literally overnight, you can start cutting your chargeback. There are some, I would say, issues, not issues, but issues with some alerts and being that if you're going to actually do a refund on some of your alerts, right, instead of actually automatically doing things, if you're yourself going to make a refund on a transaction that you've got an alert for, if that transaction comes in as a chargeback before that refund hits that consumer's card, <laughs> you get them twice the money back, right? And then you've actually got to respond to the chargeback and say, look, I did a refund, but you didn't see it because you already initiated the chargeback and there's a whole timing situation. So definitely when you implement alert type system, making sure that timing is going to be right. And then you need to watch your chargebacks because one of them will match something you did recently. Yeah. All that happens. That's actually one reason why we started our company is that our platform takes care of all that and make sure that you don't end up having those situations. Like that's, they can be hard to detect matching everything up, ARNs, auth codes, all these different variables that make it difficult. But they can stop and quickly change things for a merchant oftentimes. If you don't have any of those tools in place, though, or you're just coming into a situation, I'm sure there's, we've all been thrown into helping a merchant or being placed at a merchant that is already in jail, to use your words, Christine, or you just happen to, be, to get that letter from your acquirer by way of Visa for the first time. When you get that and you're in that situation, how do you respond? Start with an investigation. Look at your chargebacks. Where did this come from? Are these actual fraud? Are these actual consumers that aren't getting their refund when they've called into customer service? It's just digging down to where did these come from? How did this happen? And then going backwards, how could I have caught this beforehand? And then you might want to get something in place where you're actually monitoring your transaction. You know, you might have to hire someone. You might find a way to do it yourself. You don't have a fraud tool. You don't have the manpower, whatever the case may be, going back and finding out how did this get through and how could I have seen it in the first place? Because all of these have the same IP address. All of these have the same device ID because you've looked at every single chargeback individually. You can go back and see 
what patterns would have actually shown me the truth and then going forward, you know, working with an engineering team, if you don't have the funds to have a fraud tool on hand, can you code me up something that is going to flag a transaction with this device ID, with this IP address over these hours in the middle of the night when nobody is shopping for a spoon wrap, right? And send those to me every morning so that I can look at these and say, okay, these don't seem right. Depending on your price point, you might want to reach out to that cardholder, this consumer that you're shipping a spoon wrap to from 4am. Did you do this? Was this, did you really buy $25,000 worth of spoon wrap at 4am? No, probably not. And just go from there. It's how you build your fraud detection and your prevention, especially if you don't have the time to implement some things or find a fraud tool. You have to find something to stop the bleeding, right? I think that's a really good point. We haven't actually mentioned too much here today is contacting the consumer. That's, you know, back when I was at Riot Games in a really big game company, early on when I was there, like one of the, I remember walking into the office one time and the, one of the analysts and the front analyst was looking, he found a transaction he was going to decline because somebody had purchased yeah, a ton, something like that in the middle of the night, $25,000 or something that uh, in-game currency. And I told him where I said, okay, first, where is it coming from? Dubai I said, okay, email them. Like two seconds later, we get email back and it either is a good situation or it's a total scam. The guy goes off saying how I'm the prince of this and this, and we knew you have a sale coming up next week. And I wanted to make sure I had enough points to gift to my entourage, whatever he called them, because I want them all to play the game with me. And then we look back at, across his account and he never purchased that much before, but he was often gifting to the same group of people a lot and said, okay, accept it. It's Riot can afford it if it happened to be bad, prefer not to lose it, but I thought it was a good risk. And it ends up it was, that guy was a gamer as long as I was there. So most of the situations aren't quite that interesting, but yeah, call your consumer. Don't be afraid of them. They most likely, they love your product and there's just a mistake or something. And if not, hey, it's fraud, that's okay. And what if that email bounces, right? I have a whole other story right here. <laughs> You've sent that thank you email. Thank you for buying all of this gaming fun. And that email bounced. It went to the no reply at whatevergaming.com. Mm -hmm. Well, you're not checking that no reply at whatevergaming.com. You don't know that it's bounced. That was fraudulent, right? Nobody buys something digital online without having an email address. They need to be able to get to it. They have an email. <laughs> and it bounced. That's a tall tale sign. I was just agreeing with you. I mean, one thing that we do that's a little bit similar is, again, we talked about this earlier too, like involving your other departments and going through the process. And this is obviously more of a preventative, not how do I stop the bleed if I'm suddenly on a monitoring program. If you're collaborating with those other departments and walking through all the different touch points, whether it's the purchase, a customer service question, anything like that, but also having the departments that may not deal with that situation go through that process. Because if I have somebody in marketing try and buy a ticket and then look at their credit card descriptor, they may not know what I mean when I say look at my credit card descriptor and tell me what it says. So don't assume that the person you're talking to understands your piece of the business. So the more you can collaborate with those other departments to plug those holes, the better off you're going to be. But also like in situations with us, we communicate with our venues and we're saying, hey, look at this and see if it makes sense. Similar to what y'all were just saying, does it make sense to put 5,000 tickets on sale online? Should you really allow a patron that you don't know to buy $15,000 worth of tickets? Does that make sense? Because 
It might. I can't really think of all the situations where it does. Hey, it might. But also on the flip side too, that could be a really good legitimate customer for you. So do you want to rely on them always buying tickets online and not building a relationship with you? So again, what we were saying with calling that customer, have a conversation with them. If they're going to buy that much online, that's great. But if they're a really big customer, you probably want to have some sort of conversations with them anyway because they are such a big customer and you don't want to rely on it just being an online transaction all the time. Yeah, one thing too, to, to circle back to the, the question that we were all walking around answering was that what to do when you get that letter. And something I, I like to remind merchants, especially if it's a warning letter and not actually in a program, is just not to panic. To take it seriously, don't panic. Do what Christine said, you want to dig in, but also alert the people that need to know. Make sure that like your leadership understands what this means, because this is maybe one time you'll get more resources for fraud in an organization, because oftentimes you get no resources. You've got to beg and plead, because it is serious. You can be shut down. And then look, if it's from Visa, they actually have a really good, scary, long questionnaire that you have to fill out. They call remediation plan. And it's actually pretty good. It talks about finding the root cause, which is what Christine was talking about. It talks about what are the, what have you done? What are you doing now to stop it? And then it wants you to have a plan. What are you doing next? And then the other thing I remind merchants to do on those is to be really thorough. Like they generally do want to see your sales process, your order pages, your thank you pages. Even if you can't figure out where to put it in there, put it in there. Because that often is the difference between your, because your acquirer gets it, then they have to send the visa and a MasterCard. So the acquirer is going to look at that. And that's kind of, you're painting them a picture. Do you actually care? Are you taking this seriously? If you fill it out 20 characters, two words for a question, they're going to say, okay, they, they don't care about us. And they might just go ahead and shut you down. So think about that. You're talking not only to your acquirer, you're probably talking to the, your customer support rep or your account rep, but you're also talking to the head of risk. You're talking to somebody, a risk person at the actual sponsor bank. You're talking to a bunch of people in this whole ecosystem. And you want to tell that story that you really do care. You know what you're doing. And you know what? If you don't know what you're doing, get somebody to help. This is the time to do it. Speaking of help there, because I, I believe a lot of us have been in this situation. You come into a merchant who's maybe gotten the letter, maybe they're in month two or three, and they just really want the help. You need to understand that correcting this is like moving a cruise ship. You cannot fix these problems overnight. Even if you address it very quickly, the amount of time it takes all of those changes and the resulting data to permeate through the systems and result in a month where you get back below the threshold, it's going to take some time. Because if you get that letter the first month, you're probably getting it the second unless it was just a one-time blip on the radar, which is probably not the case. So you just need to be prepared for the fact that this is going to be a journey. You're not actually going to get that letter until midway through the next month anyway, right? So two weeks worth of transactions with chargebacks have already happened and you haven't been notified yet because they you know that's got to go through a lot of hands to yeah. get into your inbox. So yeah, you are definitely set up for month two. And it takes three months of under the threshold to be considered out of chargeback data, right? You have to show that this is a consistent... We are actually on this. It wasn't just a fluke. We didn't just throw a bunch of sales through there, lower that ratio. This is legitimate. Like we are actually getting this under control. I was going to say that one thing we also haven't mentioned that I bet Mandy sees a lot is she mentioned seasonal, but seasonal doesn't have to be like when's a concert season. It could be Christmas. It could be New Year's. It could be whatever your big season is. So if you're not actually set up to go to month two, for sure, this would, that might be the case. If it's Christmas and you've got all your yearly volume goes through December, then January comes. And what we didn't say earlier is that threshold, that ratio 
it's not what you would think. It's not taking the date of the transaction into account. So say for Visa, when it's, if the sale happened in December and then January comes around and that's when the chargeback happens, that's the chargeback month. And they do not divide it by December. They divide it by January. It's transactions. And so if your December is huge, your January is bad, which many merchants are, you're in a program very likely. Mm -hmm. And you might be out the next month. But like Christine said, in my head, I always watch the temp. The 10th of the month, most of the time you get your letters around that. Maybe the 15th at the latest. But like she said, you don't have time now to fix it that month. So unless it's purely seasonal. But keep in mind the chargebacks trail across three months. Great. So this has been really good. As we wrap up here, I'd, I'd love to get some perspective and thoughts from each of you on the future of fraud and chargebacks in subscription as you see it. So trends, innovation, up and coming programs or regulations, just maybe if each of you can share one thing that you have on your radar out here in the future. For me, I think one of the big things coming that I think is going to be really important are two things. Is one, I think the brands are going to continue to step up. They're going to bring new products there. I know the brands are bringing some new products. One, for example, is we mentioned RDR. So right now RDR is, it's difficult because the rule around RDR is set when you sign up. And you can't easily change it. They're coming out probably first of the year with RDR decisioning, which will let you decide via API in real time. And so that can make a big difference, I think, for a lot of merchants. And I think that'll impact subscriptions and everyone across the board. Mandy, do you want to go next? Sure. So I think kind of twofold. I think that merchants are going to need to collaborate with one another. So they really need to find a network and have resources to reach out and see what's happening, especially if you're a smaller merchant and this is new to you. Find the resources to have conversations with people so you know what trends are happening and to be on the lookout for. And to also just be aware that fraudsters, whether it's a subscription product or not, fraudsters are getting more tech savvy. And so you as a merchant are going to have to become more tech savvy too to know what to watch out for. Great. Christine, what's on top of mind for you? Oh, man. So, I mean, along with everything that Scott just said, right, there are new products every day. There's new fraud tools every day. There's new data points to look at every day or something new. It is beautiful. It's lovely. They're smarter than we are. Okay. So fraud tools tend to be very reactive. They come out after the fact, after the bot attacks have been seen numerous times, after breaches, things of that nature, is when we start building the tech to respond to that kind of stuff. Fraudsters are really smart, right? Again, goes back to they're getting paid for this. This is what they do for a living. We're on the wrong side of this guy. <laughs> <laughs> but just merchants being more proactive, actually looking at their transactions, getting into their data is not something that is a, when are we going to do this? We need to do this now, right? Everything is online. I feel like merchants keep pushing off purchasing fraud tools, keep pushing off looking at the bottom line and actually calculating in the cost of a chargeback, like Scott was talking about. It is something that is a huge issue, working with other merchants in order to get ahead of the game. I mean, that's something that acquirers have had in their back pocket for many years. When I was on that side, we worked with other acquirers. We worked with other ISOs and paypacks to find common issues. Why aren't merchants doing that? We can all sit in a circle. We can sing kubaya. We can talk about patterns and specific countries or cities or area codes that we're seeing a huge problem with. And we can all talk about that to get ahead of these guys, at least to save merchant number two, right? But nobody wants to share that kind of data. We understand you don't want to admit that you're in charge back jail. 
You don't want to admit that you don't have a fraud tool. We understand, however, come faith, we are all seeing this issue. Prices are going to rise, just like Mandy was talking about earlier, with the supply demand, right? It's just going to get worse and worse. Everything is online. You can gamble online. You can do everything online. <laughs> so getting a fraud tool or getting a human in-house that knows how to read your data, that can slap it together, see this beautiful spider web, and find the pattern before they go rogue is so important. Yeah, I'll throw in on top of what you guys just said around networking and talking to other merchants and things. Definitely should do that. Like I know when I start, first started going to events, one of the things that I found the neatest was that you know I was a brand new merchant and never heard of a chargeback. Got into chargeback, what I call hell, chargeback hell or chargeback jail, and went to an event. And it was shocking to me that one, all these people have heard of this and had all these same problems. But two, even if you're a smaller merchant, and most of us are, we actually have the exact same problems as the, the huge companies. It's just different scale. And yeah, they have more money to throw at it. But a lot of those tools are available to everybody. And talk to merchants and don't be afraid to share those things that she's saying you don't want to share. How's it going to hurt you? Share, get help from the people that have been through it. And understand too, that you're not competitors at these events or in an you know, online network. If you're talking to other fraud people from other companies, even if you're a competitor, that's probably the best person to talk to. You don't have to share your numbers. Don't tell them your next new product or your next video game you're launching. Tell them your fraud rates. Tell them you're seeing this pattern. They can probably help. You can collaborate and help each other. Scott, I think that's spot on. And I couldn't agree with it more. That's one of the great things about our industry is the collaboration, the discussions that happen because we are all really in this together. And I hope that this episode has provided another tool for people to listen to, especially those that are just coming into maybe some of these responsibilities and have listened to this to learn from others about what they've gone through or know others are, are going through. This has been a lot of fun. And I, I feel like in some cases, we've just scratched the surface of where we could go on some of these topics, but we'll definitely include the contact information for Christy, Mandy, and Scott in the notes on each of the platforms. But I just want to thank all of you today for taking the time, coming on, sharing your insights, your expertise, and providing that to our listeners. So thanks, everyone. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Subscription Scale, sponsored by Rebar Technology. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast and share this episode with your network.